You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast, a virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here with you today. We're joined now by Dr. Scott Huffman. He's director of the Winthrop Poll and a professor of political science. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, absolutely. My pleasure. So tell us your Winthrop story. Tell us how you ended up at Winthrop. Well, I grew up in North Carolina, and my wife grew up in Charlotte, um, just across the border. And when I was finishing my PhD, you know, I went out on the market. I actually got quite a few offers, but they were all over the country, nowhere near home. And several of them were at, you know, kind of more research-oriented places. And I really love teaching. It's an important part of, of who I am and what I do. And, you know, uh, the hiring season was almost over. And suddenly this job comes out of nowhere at Winthrop University, which, of course, I knew because I'd grown up in North Carolina. I knew where Winthrop was and what it was. And so I applied, uh, came down here and uh, and pretended that I was uh, a, a, a good person, decent professor. And uh, they <laughs> bought it. And I've been here for uh, nearly 20 yeah. years. Uh, you'll have to let us know what that scam was you ran so yes. that we can continue <laughs> to perpetrate it. Um, tell me about the Winthrop poll and how that all came together. Because, you know, when I was hired here two years ago, you know, I was thinking, well, I know one person at Winthrop, and it's Scott Huffman, because so often as I was reporting in South Carolina, especially down covering the State House, I would reference the Winthrop poll in my reporting. So super well known for that, and, and certainly a thing that gets the Winthrop name out there a lot. Tell us about how that all came together. Well, it sort of came out in a, a roundabout way. It, it started because one of the things I was hired to do, and you know, in addition to my other specialties in political science, was teaching research methods, and and that's mostly statistics. It's research design and and statistics. And when I was an undergraduate, um, taking my political science research methods class, we had made up data. And we learned the statistics using made up data and I, we never got to actually conduct research. So I thought, you know, if we're going to teach these students how to conduct political science research, we should do it for real. Um, and so the very first what became the Winthrop poll eventually was, um, you know, this was back in 2002, 2003. Most people still had landlines, if you can remember that far back. Um, I uh, created a way to generate random phone numbers because, you know, you can't use the phone book, back, you know, back, either back then either because 35% of phone numbers are unlisted. Um, and I would basically supervise students on regular landline phones, holding them to their ear, uh, you know, punching in the numbers. And we would do small, very small polls that way and then crunch the data. And it sort of began you know, growing from there to, uh, you know, now it's uh, all callers, whether they're students or not, go through professional training. We have about three plus million dollars in, in contracts, but we only take kind of public entities. So, for example, now we're <laughs> calling for the Centers for Disease Control of, of all coincidences. Nice. But we also all do the Winthrop poll. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, as it's grown, we've been able to poll on issues that were important to South Carolinians. You know, most politicians only care about registered voters of their own party. Well, when we were able to show the legislature some of our results, there have been laws that have been changed because of that. And Winthrop students have been able to, to you know, be in on the ground floor of literally changing the law in their state. And that, a lot of them have, have come back and said that it was an amazing experience. I just want to ask you one quick question related to the Winthrop poll before we let Mark jump in here. But you get a lot of interview requests. What's like the farthest place or, you know, the most obscure media outlet you've heard from where you, where it shows that the Winthrop name has reached? Well, I'll give you two examples. And the first is TBS. And I thought, well, I know TBS. I mean, I'm a Braves fan, for God's sake. Charles sure, Barkley wanted to interview you. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, and so this interview request comes in, and this woman comes in with a film crew uh, and says, you know, here's, here's my card. I'll be doing most of the translation. 
it was the Tokyo Broadcasting Service. Wow. Um, and oh, they had come in and, uh, and they had an interpreter and, uh, and I did an interview and that was one of the, the presidential races. And then, of course, when our former governor, Nikki Haley, was running, um, our results were all over uh, papers and news uh, in India. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing that we're, we're doing these uh, this series of interviews with uh, faculty and alumni and everything for virtual Winthrop Day, when um, students come to campus and they bring their parents with them and they, they look at political science, um, like what do you tell them as far as like what, what's the job market like? What can I do with a political science um, degree? You know, we actually we have a board, a billboard, a bulletin board on our hall that literally says that. What can you do with the, or what can I do with a political science degree? And the, the truth is we have successful alumni everywhere from, you know, being literal judges here in South Carolina to successful real estate, business, a lot of people in the public sector. Um, the thing about say something like political science is it gives you an understanding of the government and of society in a way that everybody's going to have to know if you're a contractor you work every day under government regulations and rules and so what we do in political science is is kind of teach you how to examine problems and critically think about solutions right so i have a a, a friend you know from the 80s back in college and he was learning i can't remember what it was COBOL, i think and he came out with a skill that was marketable then well you know every few years he had to update it because you know but uh, old programming languages die off and you have to learn the new ones and you know while we're not training you to be a obviously a computer programmer we're training you to be adaptive and to actually look at problems in new ways with new solutions which is why again we you know everybody thinks oh poli sci going to become lawyer sure we have plenty of those um, but we have even more that are in, you know, the business world or the public sector. And, you know, and especially the ones who have gone to grad school, they always, always call back and say, I was head and shoulders above my other first year grad school students because of the education I got at Winthrop. And that always makes us proud. I want to ask you about the election, Scott. Um, last time you and I spoke... It was just a couple days before the South Carolina primary, and you know I had asked you about Bernie Sanders appearing to be the front runner and Joe Biden's campaign maybe, you know, being in serious trouble, and you know you had talked about how important this Jim Clyburn endorsement was going to be. Did you have any idea how drastically things would change after the primary, where things just totally reversed? Biden becoming the front runner and now Sanders out of the race? Well, you know, the Sanders out of the race, no. Um, I knew that the, you know, uh, Jim Clyburn endorsement was make or break for, for Joe Biden. I think, and that's nothing, you know, truly innovative. Jim Clyburn's voice is stunningly important to African Americans in South Carolina, and African Americans are over 60% of the South Carolina Democratic presidential primary. Um, so I knew it would swing him. I knew it would give him a boost. I expected it to definitely go from, you know, a win of low single digits, mid single digits to um, double digits, maybe in the upper teens at, at the best. Um, but the actual size in which it swung it, I, there's no way. I absolutely did not predict that big. I knew the swing would happen. I thought it would be significant enough to put Biden back in the race, I did not know it would be giant enough to essentially win him the race. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here, and we're speaking with Scott Huffman, director of the Winthrop Poll and a professor of political science. Uh, another question about the, the election. How does the, the shutdown, the pandemic, you've seen a few states cancel their primaries, um, Ohio, I believe, held their primary and was criticized pretty heavily for it. How do you think the election has impacted moving forward during this lockdown and during the pandemic? Well, and yeah, Wisconsin held a, a you know in-person voting, and, and there have already been COVID nineteen cases 
um, traced back to that. Um, what we're going to see is a fight in the courts over voting by mail. Um, voting by mail has been done for, you know, for just about forever. Uh, Donald Trump in, in uh, 2018 voted by mail in Florida. Uh, every one of our service members overseas who votes votes by mail. Um, but voting by mail can often give a slight edge uh, to Democrats. And that uh, is what um, a lot of Republican and Republican legislatures are afraid of. So we're going to see some fights that have originated because of COVID-19 um, over things like voting by mail. Um, you know, and in Florida, the, some of these things were already ongoing. Uh, you know, former felons got the right to vote back. So they, you know, were passing laws to say, okay, but you, you have to have paid all potential fines in addition to have served your time. So these fights were going to happen irrespective, but COVID-19 and especially the way in-person voting has shown, you know, uh, increases in cases um, is changing the tenor of them. Um, and, and for once, it's not too much to say that it's possibly a life and death situation. Um, so yeah, expect to see continued fights. Do you think when this all blows over and we actually do have the presidential race and it doesn't go the way some party thinks it should go, do you think we're going to see stuff tied up in the courts? Well, uh, it's, you know, that's potentially the case, you know, Donald Trump, um, when he was expecting to, to lose, uh, you know, in the days running up to the 2016 presidential election was talking about massive voter fraud. You know, the polls are not, you're not going to be able to believe the polls. And then, then he won via the, you know, he got 3 million fewer votes, but he won because of the electoral college. So, you know, something in the constitution, our founders threw in there because they didn't trust the rank and file people. But um, to the degree that it is close, uh, absolutely. You're going to see, you know, Donald Trump, you know, fighting tooth and nail against it. And if he loses, certainly, um, I, I think there's a, a huge possibility of something arising in the courts, be it for about vote counting, uh, counting electoral college votes, um, or even the handover of power. Uh, that is entirely possible. Again, you know, the things that have happened in the past few years, um, you know, are just obviously not standard. And so, you know, those of us who teach American government have, you know, had to add little sections with asterisk that, you know, that basically say this is how it's traditionally done. Mm -hmm. However, and, and that has has sort of uh, wound its way into to virtually every lecture we give in those intro classes. What do you think about how leaders and politicians have been handling this pandemic? Do you think that it's being politicized? Do you think it's they're they're doing an okay job of of not making it a political issue, or do you think it could be more or less? What's your reaction to well, it? I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that it's been politicized. There are um, there are are you know groups that are sort of astroturfing if you look at where funding is is coming from in a lot of these states like michigan and idaho that have had these um so-called protests it turns out that a lot of their their domain names um, are registered by the same folks so it has been absolutely politicized we've seen people hired and fired from the administration over you know what they've said about uh, America's response to the coronavirus. So, you know, it's definitely been politicized. One of the things that, that has been interesting from an academic standpoint, none of this is interesting from a human standpoint. It's all, you know, terrible and we want this to be over. But from a, a political science standpoint, we have seen the importance of understanding federalism rise to the top of the public conversation in ways it hasn't in years. You know, Donald Trump saying, I have the sole power to reopen the economy. And then you know, a lot of folks saying, actually, you don't. It's nowhere in the Constitution. And then when you read the Tenth Amendment, it certainly means that it's the power of the states, not the president. And then the president saying, and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law and advisor saying, you know, our, um, you know, 
emergency supply of, of protective personal uh, equipment um, is not there for the states. And it's sort of, well, actually, it, it, it should be, and it, that's written into the law. So one of the amazing things is this understanding of federalism that people are being you know, uh, forced to begin to, to wrestle with. But in answer to your other question, there is zero doubt that it's being politicized and weaponized. Do you have a favorite Winthrop story, you know, as we switch gears just a little bit? Do you have a moment that you think about that that's my quintessential Winthrop moment? Um, there's, there, there's a few. First off, and, and this is one of the things about teaching remotely, um, I miss, miss my students. There is, there is something about being in a classroom and you're explaining a topic, something you're passionate about that uh, that when you see that one student in the back corner, it's almost almost as if a light bulb actually goes off and they begin to get it and they begin to ask questions and get into it. There's it's just it gives your heart this sort of like tingle that you I just can't imagine. I genuinely miss that. Um, I think one of the moments that I come back to many, many times is maybe my third or fourth year here and um, one of my students was deeply, deeply struggling with scope and methods. That's our, again, statistics and research class. And that student just, for some reason, was having a, a mental block and struggling through the whole class. And at the, the, the final exam, um, that student is the last one left. Um, and they begin just bawling because they just can't do it. And so I sit down, I don't give them any answers, but I start talking them through, okay, do you, you know, remember in class when we were talking about this, what would you do if that were the case? And so I walked that student through those ideas without giving the student any answers and they finished the exam, they passed, and that student is uh, now a, 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 a judge in state courts. And I couldn't be prouder um, to have been a part of that student's journey. And to me, that's what sort of sets Winthrop aside from, you know, other other places. I have one daughter at Winthrop and one daughter at a, a large uh, state university in another state. Um, that daughter would never have a professor sit down with them and and help them in an emotional moment like that. And that's one of the things that makes me proud to teach at Winthrop. Uh, awesome story. That is an awesome story. Um, seeing that you don't have the contact with the students and you're spending quality time with yourself and, um, you know, probably solving a lot of world problems and everything, um, a lot of people we've talked to, they, they've picked music that, that gets them through this time. And so we got to ask, you know, do you have a pandemic playlist? Well, well, sort of. I mean, you know, there's stuff I always go back to. Um, you know, I grew up in the eighties, so Prince, there's just, that's, that's it. That's the top. There's no, no artist like Prince through his entire catalog. So, you know, I, I still occasionally go back, um, and, and, and watch, uh, you know, the, the purple rain movie just to see it. Um, <laughs> you know, some of the others are, uh, there's a, a punk band I like called the dead milkman. And uh, they have a, a catalog, which is just amazing. That gets me through times. A lot of their songs are deeply hilarious. And, uh, and for the first time in a long time, uh, again, I guess this goes back to the 80s, but I've been re-listening to Tears for Fears. Uh, and, uh, and I guess that's, I, I never had an emo phase. So I guess Loving Tears for Fears was the closest I got to it. But uh, let me tell you, of all the songs I'm listening to, those three sets of artists, uh, Prince, Dead Milkman, and Tears for Fears, um, are coming up a whole lot, followed closely by uh, Iggy Pop, and then it's just sort of all over the place. Wow. I, I guess a song like Everybody Wants to Rule the World is a good thing for a political scientist to uh, to be listening to for on repeat for 12 hours, right? Yeah, well, it's basically yeah the, the story of my life. Right? <laughs> well, uh, if you like... Uh, uh, punk music that has a little humor to it. For me, in the 90s, there was a band called Me First and the Gimme Gimmies that we used to play all the time on our college radio show. And they uh, 
would do cover songs. And uh-huh. my favorite was their cover of Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. So uh, oh. get on YouTube, <laughs> check that out, add it to your Will. pandemic playlist. And uh, it's, a, it's a real hit. It'll, it'll, it'll make the, the rotation, I promise. <laughs> Dr. Huffman, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Very, very much my pleasure. Thank you all for doing this. That was Dr. Scott Huffman, director of the Winthrop Poll and a professor of political science. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day.
Listening to the Eagle Air Broadcast, a virtual Winthrop Day. I'm Joseph Casco, alongside my partner Mark Nortz, and we're joined now by Ryan Brooks. He's a political reporter at BuzzFeed and a 2017 graduate of Winthrop as a mass com and political science major. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. So, first, just tell us your Winthrop story. How did you end up at Winthrop, and, and what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. So I knew that I wanted to go into journalism uh, from the eighth grade. um, And that was a decision that I didn't want to sit at a desk every day and do the same thing. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to do something like that. And I knew that I was a a decent writer at the time in the eighth grade. And so I I chose to go into journalism and I wanted to stick in state. Um, I applied to both uh, USC and Winthrop. And I ended up deciding to come to Winthrop. I visited the campus, uh, I believe it was my junior year of high school, and I just felt at home, uh, just on Scholar's Walk. Um, it just felt like a place that, like, you would be able to get a great experience with your professors because it's such a small uh, school. Um, so your professors know who you are. And you felt that, like, even on campus during, like, my junior year of high school, um, I was able to get that sense of that. Um, so ended up coming my senior, uh, ended up applying my senior year and, and decided to go to Winthrop after that. So being a political reporter seems like the perfect combination of not one, but both of your majors at mm-hmm. Winthrop, mass comm and political science. Just tell us how Winthrop and the experience of both being mass comm and poli sci helped prepare you for where you are and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So I did not know that I was going to go into poli-sci when I uh, started at Winthrop. I was just a a mass comm major. Um, uh, When I was at Winthrop, they had you take a uh, state and local politics class as a part of the journalism courses, and then you had to take uh, political science, uh, I think it was 101. Uh, And so I ended up taking those. I ended up loving the classes and from there, I just continued those classes with uh, Professor Dr. Belk and then a uh, Dr. Holder, uh, who are in the, the poli sci department there. And, and I loved those classes and uh, looked up my senior year and I had one more class to take to add the major. So I ended up doing that. Um, but those classes have helped out a lot. Um, as I started here at BuzzFeed, I just finished up reporting on my first primary election uh, which was the Democratic primary for president. Uh, and I was out in Iowa and we did mock caucuses like during my poli-sci classes. And those were super helpful uh, when it came to all of this. And just like learning the the basic skills of writing and, and having to do that quickly when it comes to those, uh, when it comes to the AP style tests and everything that just like sort of like gets your speed up for having to like write in the moment when news is breaking. Um, and those things have been like super helpful uh, at the start of my career here. Um, you're always going to learn things on the job, but it's 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 great to have sort of like a skill set already um, when it comes to things like that. 
So what do you think turned the tide for you of becoming interested in politics? Uh, I think it, it's just sort of like a job like where things change really quickly. So like I said, like in the eighth grade, like I knew that I didn't want to sit at a desk and write the same thing every day. Um, and, and things are always changing in politics. And, and during college, like in those poli sci classes, like you learn about like how politics like influences people and how these different like groups and movements are creating like change like in the system. And it's, it's super interesting to cover that sort of stuff. So um, what I typically cover uh, at BuzzFeed is like younger voters. Uh, so people that are like fresh out of college or still in college. And, and I focus pretty much on like uh, Democrats. That's my beat is like the, the, it was the democratic primary. So we were all in that sort of beat. Um, and I covered the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and how young voters were interacting with the Biden campaign too. Um, so I got to spend some time out in Iowa on the trail with like voters who were canvassing and out in New Hampshire and Nevada and other places like that too. Um, it's just super interesting to sort of like notice and talk to these people out, out on the trail about how they're moving and shifting politics, like even at the grassroots level when they're so young. So you are going to be a name I drop to my students when I bring up things that you might be asked to cover when you leave college. And I say, you should at least start to familiarize yourself with politics and and I hear all the time from students, oh, I hate politics, I'm not interested. And I always say, mm-hmm. you're going to be asked to cover a wide range of topics, especially at the local level. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, you're. I'm now going to add you to a name I drop in as an example of that. Yeah. Uh, well, no let's worry. let's talk about the election and mm-hmm. young voters, since you're definitely well connected in that area. Are, are you surprised at how th- quickly things changed? in the Democratic primary? I mean, how quickly it went from looking like Bernie Sanders being the front runner to mm-hmm. Joe Biden. And of course, that that U-turn happened here in South Carolina, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think like it wasn't much of a surprise for me just because like I knew South Carolina politics so much. Um, so it, it was super interesting to sort of like see it sort of like coalesce so quickly after the South Carolina primary. I wasn't expecting it to happen that quickly. Um, but like, it was, it was sort of like in the cards, um, for Biden, uh, to win South Carolina because there's such a, like a large, uh, percentage of like African-American voters in the state and the state's voters tend to be like older African-American voters, um, who aren't, who aren't typically like the, the typical Bernie supporter, um, when it comes down to polling. So I think it wasn't much of a surprise there. I think the surprise was when it came to South Carolina, how close Tom Steyer was in polling to him, like leading up to the election. Um, so I spent a lot of time with Tom Steyer, like out on the trail uh, when he was in South Carolina, um, just to see what was happening there. Um, other than that, I think Biden has always sort of like, was sort of like the front runner from the start of the race. And uh, there's a conversation happening now about uh, New Hampshire and Iowa not being like representative of the country as a whole, just because they're not as reflective when it comes to uh, the race of the electorate uh, for the entire Democratic Party. So uh, there's a conversation there that's happening, and uh, it's just interesting to sort of like see South Carolina like have play this like outsized role in the primary now. Um, there's definitely like conversations happening about moving the state up in the primary elections. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here with you throughout the day. And we're speaking with Ryan Brooks, a political reporter at BuzzFeed. He's a 2017 graduate of Winthrop University who majored in both mass comm and political science. Ryan, we talked to a guy I'm sure you're familiar with, Dr. Scott Huffman, the director Mm -hmm. of the Winthrop Poll. And we were talking about the South Carolina primary and the race and the, you know, the Democratic field. And one thing he expressed was being surprised at how wide the margin was for Biden in -hmm. South Carolina. Um, Being that you just mentioned you spent some time with Tom Steyer, he was polling fairly well. I mean, if I remember right, a couple days before the primary, he was in the like the 15 percent neighborhood 
Of course, mm-hmm. he had spent a lot of money. Um, what was your reaction to just the way it it shook out when it finally did happen and how wide the margin was for Biden? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's not even any thinking about it. Like Representative Clyburn's endorsement did what it was supposed to do for Biden uh, when it came down to the state. If you look at exit polls, like a lot of people said that they were waiting to see who he would endorse. Uh, there was a lot of talk when it came to other candidates who had dropped out prior to the race, um, who might have been a threat to Biden when it came to that. Um, but those people dropped out and, and support sort of like started to coalesce behind him in the early days of that and in the early days ahead of the primary. Uh, but I think, again, uh, Representative Clyburn's endorsement basically like bought Joe Biden that nomination uh, when it came to South Carolina. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What What do you think uh, will happen with younger voters come November? Do you think they'll they'll have the same level of excitement that perhaps they had for the Sanders campaign? Do you think they'll turn out for a guy like Joe Biden? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I actually just did some reporting on this uh, for a story I did on younger voters and how they're feeling uh, right now. And uh, I mean, throughout the primary, like, uh, people said that they weren't going to be as excited for Joe Biden, but I don't see people sitting out of the race uh, to not vote for him. I mean, like the campaign has already started to turn towards younger voters and talk to them more directly than they did during the entire campaign. Uh, and that's happening over video calls right now and and groups like Justice Democrats and uh, the Sunrise Movement and and these other like youth-focused groups are sort of like trying to push the campaign in a more leftward direction that'll that'll be more palatable to younger voters uh, who were on sort of like Bernie's side throughout the primary. Um, but I don't see them sort of like sitting out and not voting at all. When you travel across the country and you meet people and interview people, do you encounter many people out there with ties to Winthrop? Uh, so... The place I've uh, actually had ties was uh, at a press check-in in South Carolina that was in Columbia. I had no clue uh, who I would be seeing there, but uh, the people that ended up checking me in, I didn't grab their names just because I was like in a rush to go to the press pen, uh, but they were Winthrop alumni, and that was pretty cool to see there. And then there are a few other Winthrop alumni that are in like the politics arena too. Um, there's a person that graduated in 2016. Her name's Ayanna Crawford. Uh, She was a part of the Tom Steyer campaign. Hmm. Uh, So that was super interesting. I have uh, bumped into people uh, who graduated in 2015, like out on the trail. They were Warren staffers. So, I mean, it's it's always super interesting. And then like, you always find those people that like remembered that Winthrop was in uh, the NCAA tournament. Um, And they'll remember Winthrop from there, uh, just from the basketball team. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite Winthrop moment or a quintessential Winthrop story that you might share with us? Uh, I think, like, honestly, the whole Winthrop experience, like, sort of, like, ties itself together. Um, I think throughout my time there, like, my my journalism, uh, the class of 2017, like, the journalism students there, uh, we're all super close. Um, and we're all still seem to be super close. Um we always encourage each other to do whatever we're, we're looking to do. Um, I still keep in contact with a lot of them. And I think the quintessential moment about Winthrop for me is that bond. Um, it's that small class size that like sort of like keeps you together um, and wants you and pushes you to root for uh, the people in your class to, to sort of like go as far as they can go. Um, it's great seeing alums like Catherine Lowe, like doing what she's doing down in Charleston um, Alina Abedin, who was a, uh, I believe, a PR uh, student. She's doing stuff. She's done work with Google. It's, it's interesting to sort of see what she's been up to. Um, there are alums, like, that I've met on the trail at uh, at Warren events and, and sort of, like, even the South Carolina press at large, like, knows who you are um, when you're at a school like this. And they remember your face and uh, people that were at the Herald like have remembered me and, and talked to me at Warren events that I went to in South Carolina too. Um, so you create like this sort of like this community that's like bigger than Winthrop in and of itself when you sort of like join the program. Very cool. Um, yeah. One last thing. 
We've been asking people about the music they've been listening to. Eagle Air, of course, is a music station. We're building mm-hmm. what we're calling a pandemic playlist. So we're asking for recommendations of something that that people can use as an escape. What's a song or two or an artist that you might recommend to someone uh, that they can use to pass the time as we're all stuck inside a lot more often than we're accustomed to? Yeah, absolutely. I've been listening to the new Fiona, the new Fiona Apple album a lot lately. Uh, that's been really good. And then I have another playlist that I usually use for work since I'm like basically like working from my apartment these days. It's an iced coffee in the morning playlist, which I made. Um, and I can send that over to you if you want that. So give us uh, give us a couple of your favorite ones on the on that playlist. Uh, I would say Chanel by Frank Ocean is good on there. Uh, a lot of Solange music and Relay on the Fiona Apple. The new Fiona Apple album is really good. Very good. Thank yeah. you for those uh, those recommendations. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. That was Ryan Brooks, political reporter at BuzzFeed and a 2017 graduate of Winthrop University. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. I resent you for being raised right. I resent you for being tall. I resent you for never getting any opposition at all. I resent you for having each other. I resent you for being so sure. I resent you presenting your life like a fucking propaganda brochure. And I see that you keep trying to fade me. And I love to get up in your face. But I know if I hate you for hating me, I will have entered the endless race. Evil is a relay spark. I resent you for being raised right. I resent you for being tall. I resent you for never getting any opposition at all. I resent you for having each other. I resent you for being so sure. I resent you presenting your life like a fucking propaganda brochure.
Adam Lambert and Leona Lewis with Girl Crush. You're listening to WINR Eagle Air Virtual Winthrop Day rolls on here. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here with you this evening. And remember, if you want more information about becoming a Winthrop student, just go to our website, winthrop.edu. This is going to be our final hour this evening. We've had such a great time today getting to know so many people a part of the Winthrop community, so we hope you've enjoyed it, uh, winthrop.edu, and you can email an admissions counselor, admissions at winthrop.edu. We're going to play a couple of songs from the Pandemic Playlist, and then we've got a couple of great interviews lined up for this hour. So here's one off of the Pandemic Playlist, a request for the weekend. It's I Can't Feel My Face. It's up next on Eagle Air. And I know she'll be the death of me, at least we'll both be numb. And she'll always get the best of me, the worst is yet to come. But at least we'll both be beautiful and stay forever young. This I know, this I know. She told me don't worry about it. She told me don't worry 
No more. 